Good morning, everyone. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the October 15, 2013 edition of Ask a Leader. And today we explore the theme of home, leaving it behind, creating a new one, and landing, lending a hand to make it possible. Today, we have Sharon Ellis, CEO of the Orange County Chapter of Habitat for Humanity, now celebrating its 25th anniversary, and the author, Dennis Donovan, on a book tour in Southern California, presenting his human rights thriller, Escape from Communist Heaven. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short interlude. Hey, everybody. Thanks for staying with us. Welcome back to my show. My first guest today is Sharon Ellis, CEO of Orange County Chapter of Habitat for Humanity, responsible for directing the activities of a small staff of employees and thousands of volunteers. That could be any one of you as they work to help low-income families that could be any one of us build and purchase simple decent, affordable homes in Orange County. Starting her education career in Connecticut and Ohio, the larger share of her resume reads like a, the nearby map of public schools. High school teacher at uh, Santa Ana High School, assistant principal at Century High School, assistant principal at Costa Mesa High, principal at T. Winkle Middle School, principal at Corona Del Mar High School, and special assignment administrator evaluating traditional and alternative high school settings and exploring programs to stimulate the academic growth for all middle and high school students. Sharon Ellis received her Bachelor of Science in Education from Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a Master's Degree in Education Administration from United States International University in San Diego, and a second-tier administrative credential from California State University, Fullerton. Sharon Ellis has lived in Orange County for over 30 years and currently resides in Irvine. She comes to us today from the hallowed offices of Habitat for Humanity in Santa Ana. Welcome to the show, Sharon Ellis. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Well, Sharon, as an educator, you saw the positive effect that a stable home had on children and the negative effect that uh, frequently moves um, and frequent moves and, uh, and unstable homes had on children. So briefly, could you tell us about your transition from education to Habitat for Humanity of Orange County to help create more stable homes for children from low-income families in Orange County? Well, I think you hit it uh, right on the head when you said the stability and instability. We know that children who have unscheduled moves from kindergarten through 12th grade, with more than five of those kinds of unscheduled, unexpected moves, will probably not graduate from high school. And as I considered taking this position, that statistic rang in my head. I truly think that what Habitat provides is the stability for a family and the focus that the family kind of goes through as they build the house. Um, to really concentrate on their future. And we look at a family, we look at the children, and we realize that a strong academic growth and development is critical if we want children to grow up to be successful adults. 
Well, and and congratulations on getting to the 25th anniversary. You've been on the board now uh, for eight years. The last five, maybe longer, the last five of which have no doubt been your busiest, dare I say, maybe the most strained, with the massive displacement of so many households during the Deep Recession. How are sales and resales handled? Um, families come to us through a process. Um, they go through an orientation, and um, we really look at a pre-application and then a full application. We are looking for families that are in the eight, 30 to 80% of the area mean income in um, Orange County, and we are um, looking for families who really truly want to partner with Habitat. This is a hand up, not a handout. Families have significant commitments that they make um, including 500 hours of sweat equity. So families really have to say, this is something I choose to do. In that process, uh, families are uh, going to learn about mortgages and uh, the responsibility of a homeowner. So they actually are preparing themselves for homeownership and that responsibility of uh, taking care, maintaining a home, and um, paying a mortgage. Families come to us with that expectation that they are going to be living in a home probably for the next 20, 30 years. So we want them to be um, well-grounded in what it really means to assume homeownership. As you and I know, it, it's more than just the mortgage payment. It's the maintenance of a home. It's taking care of things so that your home continues to improve and um, maintain its value. There are times that families um, sell their homes, um, yes. and they sell them back to Habitat. We have the right of first refusal. We will repurchase the home, and then we will go through that same process again with another family, and that qualifying family will be doing their sweat equity in other ways, probably working on another development since this is already a built home. Um, but they will um, actually be... Um, putting in that 500 hours of sweat equity in one way or another and continuing that um, same process as they move forward and assume a mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I, I myself live in a restricted equity housing unit in the faculty homes and, the, and staff homes of University of California, Irvine. So I'm, I'm aware of how our housing resale prices pegged to a much different indices, series of indices than on a regular market unit. How does that, how is the price set for Habitat for Humanity uh, unit once it's up for sale? After, I know you're, you're explaining it's a 20 to 30 year sort of uh, projection of where that resident might remain there, but how, how is that s- sale set up? Well, it's, it's linked to, um, to CPI and it's also linked to the number of years a family has been in the home and then the purchase price of the home. If you think about how we structure a purchase price, if you go out in the traditional market and you say, I want to buy that house at the corner of First and Main, someone says the value, we're selling it for $300,000. For Habitat, that really is an interesting number but doesn't mean a lot to us because we commit that their housing costs will not exceed a third of their income. So even though the, the value of that house might be 300000 a family who could only afford a mortgage of 180000 would be purchasing that, that home for 180000 
So it, linking us to the, the market is a, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't compute, but that's a hard thing for a lot of people to understand. We back into the price of a home based on what the, the family has the ability to pay. So mm-hmm. when it comes to reselling the home, we have to back into what did the family purchase that home for, how many years have they lived in the home, and then what is the CPI calculation. The consumer price index for those who correct, correct uh, walk around right. with that. So then that's, that's how it works. Well, that's an amazing, uh, amazing formula and accommodation and 500 hours of sweat equity. Folks, that sweat equity could be... Uh, Sharon, in the in the form of actual hands-on construction, could it be sweat equity in, in contributing to any administrative volunteer effort in the office? Could that show up in different places throughout the organization? It could, uh, but we we encourage families to put in the sweat equity hours on the construction site when it's um, when they're physically capable of doing that. For two reasons. One, they interact with other volunteers who are out there working mm-hmm. um, on the construction site, and there are incredible links that happen yes. when volunteers realize that they are working alongside of the family who is going to be residing in this home. Wow. And the other is that I think um, I see a transformation in the families. They come to us um, anxious and a little apprehensive about this process, but it's almost like watching a flower blossom. They are tight in the beginning, and then you just watch them transform and bloom in front of you because they've looked at what they have done. And when you get to the end and you have the dedication for this home, it's amazing the words that are said consistently. And it is children who come up to you and say, look what my mom and dad (laughs) built. And hundreds of people have been involved in it, but what they see is what their parents have done. And what the parents feel, I think, is, wow, look what I have been able to do for my family. So there's a, there's a lot of things internally that are going on that I think that sweat equity just is a, is a time for, uh, for really thinking about what they are doing and the change that they are bringing about for their family. So it's a very powerful time that is, um, it's touching. And for people who have been on the construction site and served with those families, I think they get a disease that we all call hepatitis, Uh, but they want to come back, and they want to do it again. It sounds like an hourly dedication to ownership. It is. It is, you know, hour by hour, Yes. Brick by brick, wall by wall, they're really seeing their vision of changing, strengthening their family unit, building right in front of them. And it is, it's an amazing um, ending when you realize that this family has worked hard. They have put in their sweat equity on this process, but they are going to be moving in and sharing in kind of the, the wealth of what they have built. So it's, it's very powerful. So, yes, they can do sweat equity in other areas, but that's where the power is, is being on the site. Well, listeners, you're tuned to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live in shelters all over the world on KUCI.org. My guest is Sharon Ellis. 
Chief Executive Officer of the Orange County Chapter of Habitat for Humanity. We're talking generally about the habitat and habitatus of the program. And let's let's move into some of the programs with the what are most topical right now. Let's start with the current activity going on in Cyprus, where people might uh, locate an opportunity right around the corner. Yes. Um, We have uh, a development. We'll be building 15 homes in Cyprus on Lincoln Avenue. Um, We actually have the wall raising for that this Friday at 7.30 in the morning. Okay. So if anyone wants to join us, it really is kind of a a fun way to start. And we will continue construction. It's actually five, um, five buildings. I'm sorry, three buildings with five units per building. So we'll be doing the wall racing on the first five this Friday. So interestingly, and and certainly uh, feasibly, the units tend to have um, multi-family structures, correct? Um, It depends really on the land. Um, The ones that we are building here in Santa Ana are are mostly um, single-family homes, Um, but it's truly based on the lot configuration in Cyprus. uh, This was the the way to go. Well, I can see that what you're accomplishing with the multi-family is a the opportunity for that slightly higher density to foster even more community. I think that probably works really well with the whole Charter for Habitat for Humanity. It does. Okay. It does. Well, then tell us, Sharon Ellis, about the critical home repairs that address the veteran homeowners, and that's a little shift from the new home construction sales. Absolutely. Uh, we are doing 25 um, veteran home repairs this year. We started this in June, and we will continue on through June of 2014. It's really to uh, work with veterans who own their homes but perhaps are limited by uh, income or, uh, you know, physical disabilities to um, maintain their homes. Uh, It could be a roof. It could be a ramp for the front entryway if somebody now needs a wheelchair capacity um, things that we think will help that family um, continue to have a valued life in that particular residence. So we are very excited about the opportunity to do that. Um, and we do about two or three a month. So if you or some of your listeners know of veterans who might fall into that category, please give us a call. And there's the Habitat oc.org website that will uh, we'll keep that in the the podcast summary for those who weren't able to get the direct uh, news but you there's so much listed in that website so and are the veterans households uh, dispersed around or they concentrate in particular areas in orange county you know we've done um, several in the fullerton area but we are uh, open to any area of orange county okay well, then there's so many other ways that listeners can contribute. We've talked about sweat equity. There's there's donations to the restores. There's purchases. At, well, helping with the vet. I, I guess do you have on your staff, let me back up here a little bit. On your staff, there are people that, that help with doing the titles and doing all this, the, the, the loan sorts of terms. Are they assisting in the technical assistance that way, or is that happening in, in the, the regular market setting? We have um, a family services um, department, and um, that they do several things. Number one, they do the, the vetting process for the families. So we have one staff person who does that and an incredible array of volunteers. Okay. When families are um, selected as a program family, 
um, which means that they are conditionally a homeowner. They're a program family. They have to finish that 500 hours of sweat equity before they are qualified to be a homeowner. Right. But we have um, internally the staff who prepares uh, most of the documents for um, homeownership, and we do that internally. So that, And one other thing that we have that we haven't mentioned, yes. each time a family is selected as a program family, they receive what we call a family partner. That is a volunteer who works with Habitat, the office, and um, the family to make sure that any questions that the family might have or um, confusion about what a requirement might be, that person is truly the liaison between Habitat and the family. And they really are the conduit for making sure that continued information is always accurate. And, you know, you could call an office and get one person one day and call another day and get another person, and maybe they're saying the same thing but in different terms. And so this person really is a key person in this process of growth for the family because they become the certainly the go-to person for conveying information back and forth. And when we get to the point where we are doing um, document signing, that person actually is sitting there with the family, making sure that the family clearly understands everything that we are signing and what it means. So they are a critical part of our whole process. And is that that's paid staff, or is this some illustrious volunteer with the the background in any of these aspects of home ownership? A volunteer. Wow. And, you know, there are many things that you say, golly, I don't know if I could do that. We train family uh, family partners with critical pieces, and certainly we don't expect the family partner to know the answer to everything. But if the family calls that person and then that person calls and says, okay, Sharon, what? how do I explain this? Then they can get back to the family. And, again, the, the conversation is always uh, a consistent um, relay of information. But we don't expect a family partner to know the answers to all of the questions. Um, but they are such a great resource for the family that it is a great way to make sure that accurate information is going back and forth because they're trained to turn to us and say, okay, I need to answer this question. How do I do that? Indeed. And there are, at, at, at the website, you can see them. I wanted to highlight a few. Some of them, like Women Build, are not currently activated, but they're around the corner. That It was a successful program in the past, so uh, there's that to look up. There's the Habitat Orange County Ministry, which uh, people can uh, find out more about. That's the For the youth, I'm um, interested in the Habitat Campus chapters. Those are ongoing in all the schools. High schools, I think University High School nearby to KUCI does have its own chapter, does it not? Um, I believe they do, and I think, actually, uh, UCI has a chapter. Ah, okay. Sometimes chapters, depending who's, you know, at a school, um, either at the high school or college level, uh, that leadership graduates and moves on, and sometimes there's not someone to jump in and take over the responsibility. So they kind of ebb and flow as that commitment and enthusiasm uh, ebbs and flows at a site. Well, and, and as a model alum or maybe a, a contributing, currently contributing partner is Luis, in, and you can see that on the website, folks, Luis's dream and how his gratitude, his creativity, and his persistence keep paying off for the organization. You want to say just a little bit about that, Sharon? Luis was a, an eight-year-old boy when he and his mother moved into their home in Placentia, and about six months after they moved in, Luis came to me with a donation, 
um, he had an envelope that said $46.50, and Mom had crossed off the 50 cents because he'd gotten a Popsicle. (laughs) But across the bottom was a little note in his handwriting that said, so other kids can have a house like mine. This is an 8-year-old child who understood what his mom had done, and he understood what, what had happened for him and the value of it. And each year on the dedication day of their home, he has done a little fundraiser at his school or um, some other means of raising money, and um, he brings me a donation. And his vision is that someday there will be a home built in Orange County that will be funded by children. So let's see, can we coin a term after the form of sweat equity? This is wish equity. Wish equity. <laughs> and, and send that on. So uh, he's a, a marvel and a model for how uh, every little bit uh, keeps contributing to a much, much greater cause. Well, you have around the corner on October 21st, that's a Thursday, um, it'll be in the morning, 8.30, 9.30. On that day is the, the next Building Dreams Tour for people to get a look at what is going on? I guess they go to a home that's being constructed? No, actually we do uh, Building Dream Tours at our office. Okay. And it's really to give people a snapshot of the work that we do um, here in Orange County. And I, I think people are certainly aware of the name of Habitat, but once you get beyond that and they know about raising the wall, people's ideas about what we do gets a little blurred. So it gives us an opportunity to really um, give accurate information about what we're doing. And what's so exciting for us is that every person who goes through this very quick tour, and it's not, a, it's not an ask tour, we're not asking for money, it really is an educational opportunity. We feel confident that they will walk out the door with much better accurate information about Habitat and are able to be a greater ambassador for the work that we do, both here and around the world. So representatives of a household, of a, of a congregation in Orange County, there's any kind of a group, that person that could be attending that. It's uh, during some people's work, many people's work hours, but it's, uh, it can be arranged. And well, you're asking for people to RSVP via email or the phone number is 714-434-6200, extension 218. You want people to respond the 2 o'clock the day prior, so on October 23rd in the afternoon, be the time to... to set that little project in motion and, and attend on October 24th. So, um, And if one misses that tour, they are planned on a regular basis, so there's opportunities in the future. Well, there, yes? Just one more. We have the um, opportunity uh, and the capacity to actually take this on the road. So if you have a, an organization or a corporation and you would like more information about Habitat, we are happy to come and do a very brief presentation about the work that we do here and how people can be engaged with us. Well, very fine. Well, I'd like to wrap up with the uh, mentioning the locations for the two Habitat restores. I love the way that's expressed. There's one in Santa Ana, 1400 Village Way, and the one in Garden Grove is at 128 128- 
1027 Harbor Boulevard. They're open seven days a week, which you'll see on their website at habitatoc.org. Well, Sharon Ellis, that is all the time we have. Uh, Sharon Ellis is CEO of Habitat for Humanity here in Orange County. Thank you so much for spending your time with us this morning. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Well, talk with Dennis Donovan next on the show, and he'll talk about his fascinating book, Escape from Communist Heaven, captures a very personal account, what it felt like during those days after Saigon fell in 1975. He's a man with a very broad cause about which we'll hear very shortly. Don't go away. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, everyone. My next guest on the show is Dennis Donovan, who's written a fascinating piece of historical fiction entitled Escape from Communist Heaven, published by Sentinel Publications, based on a true story to which he was privy upon his meeting the central character Viet Nguyen. Dennis Dunvin was born and raised in the Midwest, completed his journalism degree at the University of Missouri. While he was working overseas in London, he met Viet Nguyen, a remarkable man with a remarkable story. Dennis is currently on a book tour promoting his book in California, including Garden Grove High School this Friday afternoon. Originally, Viet was to accompany Dennis on this tour, but remains in London while his visa is still getting processed. Dennis comes to us today, this morning, from San Diego. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it is like you are there. The book certainly deepened my appreciation for what the Vietnamese people endured. Dennis, how did you first meet and get to know Viet Nguyen? I met Viet in London. It was uh, several years ago. I was on a work permit after uh, school. It was a work abroad program from the University of Missouri. So I was um, there. I was actually bartending. My parents were very proud of that. (laughs) And uh, so Viet, I was training at the end of my work permit, uh, you know, traveling around Europe. And I was training him for, for my job. And he was telling me how he escaped from a communist prison camp, and I just thought, wow, it was, you know, it was fascinating. Growing up in the Midwest, I hadn't uh, had too many out there experiences, and, and I asked him, I said, would you like me to write your story for you and what happened to you? And he agreed, and so I ended up uh, living with him and his family in London, and writing the stories that he told me. So he was really pretty forthcoming. This is a question I was wondering about preparing here. You're maybe filling up a pint or something like that or showing him how to make a martini, and he says, oh, by the way, I was in a communist uh, Vietnam. Is that how, how easily and forthcoming he was? Um, pretty much. He, Viet's a pretty open person, and one of the reasons that, that we were able to write this book is because Viet tried very hard to learn English. And as you know, a lot of people that, that come to our country or our other English-speaking countries, they sometimes they end up in their own groups and areas. Uh, but Viet really wanted to become part of the new society that, 
that uh, or where he was, and his communication skills were amazing. And that's really what, what helped us to uh, make this book possible. Wow. Well, one of the many takeaway messages I got was actually how horrible that whole ordeal was for all Vietnamese, that's North or South, upper, middle, lower class Vietnamese people, as the totalitarian regime was being established, assets were taken away from everyone, and the mind control was full tilt. So he, and it's amazing how uh, this man persevered, and I'm going to hope we can get to some quotations here from the book. Here you're talking now to a man who, who persevered through that kind of a strain. So how, how did his... How did he seem with, I don't know if you saw post-traumatic stress disorder, but how, how was his disposition as you were getting to know him? How did he, as he, his story unfolded, uh, and as he was interviewing other people, you were saying, so that you could make it a composite of experiences in the sto- historical fiction, wh- how did he present himself? Well, it's interesting that you asked that question. I'm actually in a high school right now yes. in San Diego, and one of the students, uh, we Skyped via in from London, and one of the students asked him that question. And his answer was that it did take several years for him to, uh, I guess, get over um, the stress and, and what he had been through. Uh, but the, the great thing about him is he did persevere, and he has moved on, and he has, um, he married an English woman, and they had three kids, and, and he... Um, he found happiness in his life, and I, I think that's an awesome thing about him. Indeed, and that you say as you um, that you're meeting with high school audiences. Well, actually, I want to put that aside for a moment. The, I want to go to the book's title. That's called mm-hmm. Heaven Escape. I'm sorry, Escape from Communist Heaven. And I I don't know if you have your book handy. I'm looking at page 280. I don't know if that's uh, your. You can read it yourself, or would you like me to read what? where this whole title comes from in a soliloquy delivered by what's kind of a commandant of one of the camps where Viet Nguyen was uh, incarcerated, shall we say. Mm-hmm. You have, I'm, I'm, flipping, I'm flipping through here. It's on 280. 280 at the bottom. The bottom. We are only a model for the rest of society to follow. In the bottom. Okay, and, right. In time, our society will become a model for other societies to follow. We will teach others what we have learned, the value of labor, self-criticism and self-motivation, the tools we use to reach equality. In time, all societies will follow our model. All societies will become one, and we will have reached communist heaven. And so the whole irony is, it's steeped in irony because, of course, Viet is increasingly becoming thinner and thinner, and there's op- there's their sores from abuse, there's all kinds of wreckage and toil these bodies while they're hearing this equality message pitched from guys that are that are not at all as lean, and they're on, on the, the fat, fat side, so it's sort of, right. so, so right. Lead, lead not by a, a consistent message there kind of a thing. Well, those, for those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming all over the world in, um, goodness knows what, in uh, high school better not be high schools, in uh, all kinds of locations on the web at KUCI.org. My guest is author Dennis Donovan, whose recently released book, Escape from Communist Heaven, puts us right amidst what a totalitarian takeover is like. So the purpose, speaking of totalitarian, the purpose of your book tour is to reach out to the communities around here, mostly high school audiences. What kinds of civic lessons 
Dennis, are you presenting to these young members and prospective contributors of civil society? It, it's been a lot of fun. The, uh, this morning, what we, we open up with a question of what are your rights? What freedoms do you have? And obviously, you know, right to uh, free speech and religion and those kinds of things come up. And then we contrast that. These students have read the book already. So we contrast that with Viet's experiences in Vietnam. And then we also talk about other areas of the world, like Syria or North Korea. And the, the first objective, there are two. The first is to increase our appreciation of the rights that we enjoy in our country and that we need to protect these rights. And then the second is that in these students, it's great. They, they do feel that we have an obligation to help people in other parts of the, the world that don't have these rights. Absolutely. And the well, let mention that the next opportunity, you'll be talking tonight, again today, in San Diego, and then uh, it's a hop, skip, and a jump up to Garden Grove on October 18th. That's this Friday. I, I misspoke. It's, it starts in the morning. It's from 8 until 1 p.m. Now, I know you're talking to students. Now, our parents, they're uh, on notice, and other community members on notice that they can come and attend this event. You know, I think it is just the students. Okay. Um, unfortunately, in the day that we, we live, uh, there are security issues, so yes. um, it will just be the students uh, for this program. And then on to uh, Malibu Bank on of Books. Saturday at, at Bank of Books, right. On Saturday, October 19th at 2 o'clock, you'll be talking and signing books. So, uh, so that's the students are going to be able to uh, interact with you more about these messages. So they're, they're getting it then. You're seeing the lights go off. I'm so sad that Viet Nguyen isn't accompanying you because they would just, I think they just marvel at his, his presence and the, that's what the, and, and, the, they and do presence. I must say um, technology is awesome because that has been the biggest part of the, or the greatest part of these presentations uh, with Viet you know, we have the, the teacher holding up the laptop in the front of the screen and, and Skyping via it in, and they're asking him questions. And it, it is amazing that it just it almost seems like he's there. And I'm, I'm so glad that we have that technology. And yeah, it is a marvel. Well, let's let's talk about where he, he's come such a long way. I'm, I'm, folks, I am not going to give any spoiler alerts. We are going to let you discover yourself, get into the immersion of this. As I said, it's a composite of personal accounts, largely Viet Nguyen's, but others, as Dennis was telling me, of people's experience, because it, it's very detailed. You cannot escape this, uh, <laughs> bad turn of words, uh, the, <laughs> the kind of immersion in this, and it's, it becomes a page turn. You, you're just gasping. You want to know, well, what's next and what will happen? It's not, there, there's so many turns into this saga, and he's, he's, I will say, Viet Nguyen's story starts when he is a 14-year-old and living by his wits from one harrowing development after another. That that is all I'm going to say about the detail of the book. It's just extraordinary. So what I I wanted then to fast forward to the close of the book, where you're giving the readers an opportunity to see in his thinking currently. And I'd like I don't know if you're at page three seventy three and you want like to uh, convey to listeners what. He says about his interest, his feelings about going back to Vietnam on page 373. It's near the end of the book, folks. And so I don't, would you like me? So to this would be, this would be in his interview. 
Right. This is um, so. Yeah, the book ends, and then at the end, there is um, actually an interview with Viet. And uh, the question then is, uh, I believe, would you like to go back to Vietnam? Is that the one? That's or the there... one. So um, Viet says yes and no. I went back. He actually went back in 2004. But for all the money in the world, I wouldn't want to live there while it's still suppressive. When I visited, I only saw the surface. And even though I knew what to look for, I couldn't know what it is really like to live there. As I am now with all the experiences I've had, and what I know, I don't think I'd survive two weeks if I went back to live there because I wouldn't be able to stop myself from saying what I think about what I see. Here's the last but line. This Drill this yeah. last line. But there is no perfect society or complete freedom of speech anywhere. And he said this today. I heard him say it this morning a couple times, that true freedom is only in your head. <sighs> Indeed. And it's, there's, there's some wisdom that he hears from some of the uh, fellow detainees uh, that there, because uh, there's not, well, I, I am going to, I'm not supposed to do any spoilers, but there, there's some amazing wisdom. You can do a few. No, well, I'm, I'm thinking of the, what one of the detainees was talking about that uh, he's looking at b- what Buddha and Jesus present as another, uh, as what states, states of mind of consciousness and how, how it certainly contrasts with what is being put over in the totalitarian messages. It, it's, uh, it's amazing. And, it's, uh, and the sort of the tone shifts. There is, from in the beginning, a sense of real dread, and, and it's building dread. And then, then the ki- it gives way to a kind of a, a humor, a lightness that you impart at the end, and, and hope. It's really, and, and this is not a Pollyanna message. You have to work really hard, folks, to get to that, that, that shift. But, so the uh, doom that he's, he's working with is how, it's so, it's so well written, and not, I, but I don't want to give... But appreciate that. Now, if I could... Yes, um, please, Dennis. I've actually been criticized because in the, uh, in the interview at the back of the book, I state that one of the primary objectives of the book is to be entertaining. And you know, it's such a serious subject that there has been some criticism that, well, should it really be entertaining? And I think that it should be, because if it's not, no one's going to read it. And to uh, address what you were just talking about, Viet is a very positive person, and I think that is what allowed him to persevere. And so the book is very uh, dreadful, as you say, in the beginning. But really, it escalates through to the end where he he stays positive and he finds joy in his life, even in Vietnam. And I think that that ability to stay positive is a big part of why he um, found freedom in the end. Which is remarkable because, as I said, these are formative years that he endured a strained stretch. He was 14 years old, and by the time where the book ends, he's about 16 years old, barely 16. So it's that he could remarkably come out of this intact and willing to sort of pierce through, pull the scab off all the time with telling the story and shake off the, the disorder, any kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. He probably wouldn't even call it that. He probably just takes it in strides the way that you talked about. He him. really does. And yeah, that came up this morning as well. And he's just, he, he moves on and is uh, enjoying life now. 
So I have some quotes. It's um, what he says in the early begin in the beginning. There he says, "All I know, all I knew was what people told me, and it was starting to seem like no one really knew anything." And the, what a sense of dread! And he's he's fo- he's watching uh, his his elders, his elders' reaction. That's two other generations, and they're scattered and that kind of a thing. So he, for a fourteen-year-old to not know. To whom to look up to? What's his role in the family going to be? How is he going to live by his wits in unknown territory? Because nobody, nobody was given a menu like this is what your totalitarian government will look like next week, next month, next year. So it's uh, the rules kept getting uh, reestablished for everybody. It would be, I mean, it's it's just a horrific adjustment. And I will have to say, it's it's not about me, folks, but uh, for you to consider seriously reading this book is that it it certainly changed my mind about how I consider those who've left totalitarian regimes, those refugees who have, it looked to me, they had a very black and white notion about what a communist society looks like. And I I can understand much, much better what the Cubans were facing, why they're so black and white, and why the Vietnamese uh, are so black and white. And especially since I can appreciate it is there were so many different classes. It wasn't just the upper income levels that were affected by it. Everybody lost their shirts in this one. Well, you, you hit on a really important theme, I think, of the book, and, and that is that uh, the adults and you know, the older generations didn't have an answer. And we talk about the freedoms that we have, you know, the basic ones like the right to privacy, etc. One of the things that... Um, I think is central is that his father, and, and there's a, a line in um, in the book that he says, "I was seeing my father as a new man, mm-hmm. a man, a man out of control." And in our country, I mean, can you imagine no. not having the right or the freedom to raise your children with your own values and principles? And that was taken away from these people. So. Um, I think that's central to the book, and I won't give away the ending, but no, 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 but it no. Was, uh, a big challenge of his father, uh, or for his father, was to regain that control. And um, and his father, you, yeah. his oh, father's yes, his father's insight was guided by the fact his father had originally been in North Vietnam, so he knew what what was in store for those the transition in Southern Vietnam. So it's a, it was. It wasn't from a blank slate that he was trying to manage this transition as the as the, as Saigon fell in 1975. So it was, it was he knew what was coming, but not not knowing what how how to hold together all those responsibilities for all the family and and his and Viet witnesses every single adjustment emotion in his father. And we'll, this is this is Stan General. We're not giving away a thing, folks. Not a thing. So um, it's, uh, yes, no society's perfect. I, I was really, really, really amazed by that. For those of you who've been, uh, who are listening at this point, my guest is Dennis Donovan. He's recently released his book, Escape from Communist Heaven, putting us amidst what a totalitarian takeover is like. And Dennis Donovan is on a tour. While uh, it was intended to include in uh, uh, this tour Viet Nguyen, who is the main character, the subject, and the main contributor to this historic fiction piece, uh, he is 
He was not languishing, but it, he surely would rather be here than waiting for his visa to be processed. So um, I do you, Dennis, envision that before your book tour ends at the end of this month that Viet will be able to come? I, I wish I could answer that, but I really don't know. As you know, these things are kind of out of our control. Um, it's a lot. Since 9-11, it's, a, it's harder to come into the United States for good reason. Uh, but we are we are hoping that that he can be here before the end of the tour. Well, I dare say we can make him a bit of a poster guy for the cost of sequestration funding of federal finances <laughs> and what a, a, I'm sure and a, and a government. I don't call them partial shutdowns. It's a government shutdown. It's just just too many things that aren't properly functioning. So I imagine he is one of the that he is a toll in this cutback of a government activity. And I I think it's a huge opportunity lost that people can't see him because I'm sure there is much more. He is more palpable in person than in the on a Skype two dimensional image uh, in a high school auditorium. So the Skype projection is coming through the your computer and it's on a much larger screen so they can get at least get a more vivid size of him we um we couldn't get that going but we do have uh you know the laptop we're actually holding it up in the in the front of the room but it's um just to have his voice and have them be able to interact with him is a big part of it and you're exactly right it would be so much better to have him here um and that's kind of one of the ironies of what we're doing is we're, we're talking about freedom and uh, <laughs> right. There's... The, the the interesting thing is, you know, and that I've thought about is that those freedoms are for us, for Americans. They don't necessarily uh, go to other parts of the world, and we're very fortunate to enjoy those freedoms. Freedom um, of movement being among them, and it's not, yes, that's the irony for him. He can't get here. And so I haven't done the math. How old is he right today? He's 51. He's 51, and he's now, uh, he's... He's changing careers from time to time, and you said he's been—he's living by his wits earlier. He's been a bit scrappier than his compatriots, and I mean that literally, not figuratively, that in learning, he's mastered English pretty well, and he has, he's taken on different professions now. He said he's going to be taking up a, perhaps a restaurant on a coastal I island. Is, and it really what made this book possible is Viet's um, ability to communicate, as I mentioned. Yes. And and um, now he, he actually built a boat, a canal boat, several years ago. A lot of people live on canal boats in London. It's uh, kind of a unique culture. So uh, he sold that boat, and now he is, um, it's a Spanish island that he is going to open a restaurant. And so he's actually taken off tomorrow to uh, go and check and it out with a friend and check it out, yeah. And as you say, uh, one of the vestiges of his surviving is he's he lives very minimally. He does. He's a minimalist, and uh, which is good for him, an environmentalist. And right. so he, he doesn't... Uh, doesn't need a lot of stuff, right? Right. Well, what we do need to do is mention the itinerary for the book tour is there for everyone to see on Dennis's, and we'll call it Enviates too. You share that. Communist, communistheaven.com, all in lowercase letters. And I'll give a preview, though, that, as we said earlier, Garden Grove High School will be hosting 
Dennis and via uh, perhaps his image. I hope you can ca- Skype him up at uh, on his t- uh, travel uh, t- to his business. Uh, this will be at Garden Grove High School this Friday, October 18th from 8 to 1 p.m. And I'm going to make sure we get some dignitaries. Maybe they can join you. Maybe Loretta Sanchez's office. They're, they were closed yesterday, so we'll get through today and uh, let them know. And then on Saturday, October 19th, Dennis Donovan will bring his book to Bank of Books. That's in Malibu at 2 p.m. He'll talk and sign. And then onward to the uh, San Jose, there's the bookstore and then a high school visit and Los Altos on October 24th. And the Modern Times, that ever famous, that's iconic. Modern Times Bookstore in San Francisco on October 26th. At, that's at night, 7 to 8.30 p.m. And then Dennis returns to Denver to resume his uh, illustrious writing career along with his day job. So, I, Dennis, I really thank you for setting aside really valuable time in between your grooming high school students and community members for what participation in civil society, what all those opportunities are in our essentially, largely free society here in the United States. I want to thank you for your uh, time today. And I think on behalf of my listeners, I want to say that I want to extend to you our heartfelt feelings to and regards to Viet Nguyen, whom we hope uh, is going to make it in time to join you for uh, the, while you're still on your book tour. Claudia, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And we are glad. So thanks for joining us. We're going to now uh, close the show, and I wanted to bring to you some announcements we're going to be having coming up. I would like to remind everybody, if you missed a part of today's show or another broadcast, you can find my podcast either in the archives at KUCI.org or on my website, askaleader.net. Next week, we'll have some several representatives from the Alliance for Men of Color and state legislation recently enacted on their behalf, and we'll also hear from UCI Professor Richard Matthew, known for leading one of the most exciting careers in the system. He's the founding director of the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs. We'll open him up about all kinds of things that he's up to. So, folks, um, we're, I want to post you on October 28th. I want that on everybody's calendar through November 8th. It's going to be KUCI's Fun Drive, and I'll like for everyone who gets something from this little handmade show of mine to show us your support. You can even show it early. Thanks for joining me. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening. (music) 